Good morning, everyone. Morning. You guys ready? You guys awake? Good morning. There we go. There we go. My name is Eric, if you haven't met me, and I'd love to get to know you if you're new to LBC. Uh, we would give you a gift out in the courtyard at the Welcome Center and help you connect uh, online. You can hit the QR code as well to get connected. Um, or if you just want more information, the QR code will help you maybe enter a prayer request or celebrate what Christ is doing. And so those are some easy ways to connect with us. Um, we're going to be starting a new series, the Book of Titus. And so what's, what's fun about Titus is it's going to really lead us into our next series, which is on discipleship. But just uh, in Titus, looking at how God structured the church, why uh, the church is designed a certain way uh, to the glory of God and to the good of us. And you, you hear all kinds of weird things where people have kind of moved and they want to make church wherever there's three people out of Starbucks and a Bible. And that's just not what the Bible says the church is. And so we want to look at that and see what does God tell us to do and how should it work and how should it be ordered. And just, you know, kind of maybe do away with some of the crazy things we learn and, and focus in on what God has for us. When I was uh, about eight or nine, my mom worked uh, at the church. She was a church secretary. And one of the cool things of being like a church staff kid is you can always steal your mom's master key, right? So I would go around to all the rooms and I'd walk in meetings. And for some reason, they never kicked me out, right? And so I was learning all of this information because there was a, a vote about to happen for an elder. And I heard a couple guys talking that they didn't want to vote for this guy because his kids were crazy. So when it came time to vote, I don't think I was allowed to, but I went into the voting area anyway, and I filled it out, and I marked no. Okay? And so fast forward, I'm uh, at this man's house playing with this kid, and we're hanging out. My mom picks me up, and I go, man, I'm so mad that I voted no for that guy to be an elder. And she's like, you did what? And I'm like, I voted no. She's like, you shouldn't even be voting. I'm like, well, nobody stopped me, right? And so I'm walking this through, and she's like, why did you vote no? And I'm like, well, I was told his kids are crazy. And she's like, who told you that? And so I told her the guy. And she goes, Eric, that guy's mad that his daughter got rejected by that guy's son. That is not why you disqualify an elder. And so at a very young age, I learned like, oh, wow, there's more to this. And you can't just believe everything you hear. And we really should go by what God's word says. And so just, you know, funny things like that. It's like, man, where do we get these ideas? And can we go to the Bible and say, okay, well, what is God designed for us? And we want to live within that framework. Let's pray, and we'll walk through. Dear Jesus, we thank you that uh, you give us the institution of the church that helps us grow in our faith, helps us love you, helps us want to be like you, uh, helps us give you glory, helps us give hope to lost people. And so it's our prayer that you would order our hearts around your word, uh, that we would have a desire to be obedient and faithful, to love you more, to want to be like your son Jesus, uh, and to uphold the trustworthy word as taught. And so it is my deep prayer that your words uh, would speak and not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so some fun things just kind of give you a little bit of the framework is, you know, Titus is called um, his, like, beloved son in here. And so what, what's important about that? Titus is a Gentile. Paul is a Jew. And he is calling him family, like a son. Because in Christ, they are a family. And so what you'll see in 1 Timothy that kind of mimics that idea is he is telling Timothy in 1 Timothy, hey, you need to put in order the household of God. And so basically what you're going to see is God wants order in his church and in the homes of Christian families. He said there's to be a structure and there's to be an order. And this is what Paul's getting at also in 1 Corinthians 14 where there's chaos going on in the church. You have 
people coming in, speaking all kinds of random languages in the middle of service, causing chaos. They're not addressing sin, and he charges the leadership to have order, that God is not a God of confusion. He's not a God of chaos. And the church is to be ordered in a way that maintains the purity of what the doctrine is and also the purity of the morality, the behavior of the church. And so that's how, why he starts it right here in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, Timothy, that you might put in order or put remained into order. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so God's very clear. He wants there to be order in the church. It's not to be willy-nilly. It's not to be just whatever you feel, whatever you want, whatever you think. And so what we want to look at is what are some of the key things that God says about the church? So we know that there's order, and the order is to be maintained. Now, this is important, by a plurality. You guys have noticed elders is plural? Yeah? Okay, I'm just making sure you guys are tracking with me. It's plural. It's always a plurality um, of elders. It's never just one person. And it can come off that way because, unfortunately, you guys have to see my face a lot. But I'm not the only face. There's other elders. We all sit at a table. We all get one vote. And we talk and we look at how do we keep order in the church according to God's word and in the morality of the church. And so it's really important we realize that it's always a plurality uh, of qualified men. And hopefully what that'll do is, you know, everyone sins. And hopefully within the plurality, we're not all sinning at the same time, right? That there's at least a couple or a few that's like got their eyes on the text, got their hearts in the right, and, and we're sh- steering the ship together. And so what's unique about a plurality is some people think, well, that's, you know, that's new or that's old, you know, they have a misconception, they don't like it. And it's like, well, God's design from the beginning would be that there was a plurality of qualified men helping his people love him and be like him. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk back in the Old Testament real quick, and we're going to look at just some, some examples of what's going on. And the first one we'll look at is in Exodus chapter 18. You have Moses. Moses is leading Israel out of Egypt. He's got millions of people. He's the prophet. He's the one who talks to God. And he finds himself trying to help people, and he's judging their problems. He's trying to help them love the Lord, obey what God's told them. And he finds himself in a precarious spot. He's trying to do all of this work. So then you have his father-in-law, Jethro. He's like, hey, you need to hear this. God has designed you to, to rule, but not to rule alone, that you're to do this with other people. So this is his advice. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. It's like every father-in-law's dream to say, right? Obey my voice. Anyways, I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? You're the leader, you're in charge on God's behalf, and you're to order the people according to what God says. That's straightforward, right? 21, moreover, look for able men. From all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as the chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So it's qualified men over a group of people to help them be like 
God and to do or be like Christ that's looking forward, but to keep what God has ordered and commanded. 22, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure and all, all this people also will go to their place in peace. So from the beginning, you see Moses being told it's not good for you to try to rule alone. You need to have a leadership structure where there's a plurality of leaders guiding the people towards what God has them do. So from the very beginning, God's design has an element of a plurality of qualified men leading his people into order and not into chaos. Okay? So now let's fast forward New Testament, Acts 14, 23. I want you to see this. It says, and when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church. So should there ever be a church without elders? And that's not a trick question, right? So the whole Starbucks back porch model with three people on a podcast doesn't hold water, does it? It's not a church. It's commanded. He tells Titus, hey, put into order, appoint elders. Acts 14, put elders in every church with prayer and fasting they committed to them, the Lord in whom they had believed. So you, you see this specific design. There's to be a plurality in every church. And it's not just uh, an American church for that matter. You know, one of the things that's hard about overseas is that we'll, we'll find a pastor and he's often alone. Uh, one of the, a good example, Pastor Kieran in India, he uh, is in a very unique situation where in their, in their society or their culture, you have Hinduism and you have a caste system. And so he's what would be called a Brahmin. So he's the highest, the smartest, the best. And he's ministering in an untouchables. They're the worst, not even worth talking to context. So everyone goes to Pastor Kieran. If you need to have a baby, you need a roof replaced, you need a plumber, everything goes to him. And so one of the first things we did is we had the, we had the Exodus 18 talk. You can't do this alone. You need to have a plurality of men to help govern the church, help love the sheep, help guide them towards Christ. Every church, whether it's here or there, has to have a plurality of elders. And so you see that it's, it's something that's changed over time as people think, oh, you just became a Christian, you're an elder, we planted a church, we move on. That's not what it says. It's qualified men who have been taught the trustworthy word in a plurality. And so we understand that. Now, one of the things that help keeps order, James 5.14. Okay? Look at this. It says, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Why is that important? It's saying, look, they're there to help pray for you and love you and guide you back towards Jesus. And it's a plurality. And here's why that's important. I know for some of you, I look like I could be your grandson and you don't feel comfortable telling me your marriage problems, right? That's fair, straightforward. That's why there's a plurality. You want to talk to a, an older man, elder? That's fine. That's great. There's a plurality there to help you, whether you're emotionally sick or physically sick. And the one thing they're supposed to do is point you back to Christ, that you're not alone, that God never leaves nor forsakes. He's with you in that process, and they're going to pray with you in that. And they're going to endure in that. That's why there's a plurality. You might not always feel comfortable talking to the main person you see or one of the other pastors. You might have more in common with another elder. But that's why the plurality is there, to help. And then there's another distinction within the plurality. First Timothy 5.17. It 
It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching. And what's that getting at? So there's going to be some guys that their life's work is going to be to preach and teach the word of God to people. And so that, that double honor means that they're paid by the church. So that's where you get paid elders or pastoral elders at LBC and then lay elders, volunteer elders, and they work together to govern the church, love the church. And so the Bible sets up this institution. It says, this is what you guys are to do, to keep order. There's going to be some men that this is their life's work. This is all they do. And they need to be compensated in that way. So the plurality has this balance to it to help love the church. Okay, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3 says this. So I exhort to the elders among you as a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but examples to the flock. Something very important here. The imagery is shepherding, true? Yeah, okay. Have you ever seen a sheep try to walk off a cliff? Right? If you haven't, just Google it. You'll see it. So what's the shepherd supposed to do? Well, they grab the cane, yank it by the neck, and pull it. And sometimes people don't like being yanked by the neck and pulled. They're saying as the shepherd, you're to give oversight, and you're to shepherd the flock towards Christ. And so there's two things that keep order in the church. There's the doctrine, and then there's also the moral purity. So sometimes what you'll see is it's on the pastor elder that if they see something out of order to protect it, they need to address it. There's one time I went into a restaurant to meet with a friend, and I see a man, a married man and a single woman sitting on the same side of the table talking to each other. And I'm like, that's kind of like high school dating right there. You guys know what I mean? And so I'm just like, that's weird. And I didn't know what to say. I'm already awkward if you meet me in public. Like, I just, it takes me a minute to, like, get words out of my mouth. And so now I'm, like, double awkward because I don't know what to say. And I'm like, oh, hey, guys. And so then I go back, I sit down. And it's just gnawing at me. Like, oh, that's your job. You can't let that go. You can't let that go. So I get up to go say something. They were gone. They booked it, right? And I'm like, oh, they're definitely guilty. I know something's going on. So I go, I call an elder. I'm like, hey, we need to meet with this guy. And so we go, hey, you were, you're a married man, and that wasn't your wife. What's going on? And of course, if you ever hear this, it's a lie. Oh, she's like a sister to me. You don't flirt with your sister, okay? It's just a bad it's a bad excuse people use to try and say it's platonic. No, it's not. Well, they end up getting mad. How dare you accuse? How dare you do that? Months later, it comes out there was an affair. But that's the role of the elder pastors to address the sin in the church. Say, hey, you're going off a hey, Come this way. That's not your wife. You're to be faithful to your wife. Sometimes we'll get a phone call and say, hey, there's a married man in your church and he has a dating profile. Okay, well, we got to talk to them. Why are you married and on a dating website? Sometimes it's from years ago. They forgot to take it down. Sometimes, you know, they're doing what they should. And it says the elder pastor to exercise oversight, to shepherd the flock, bring them into the fold back to Jesus. That's what they're there for. That's how you keep order. That's part of 1 Corinthians. There's a man sleeping with his father's wife, and the church leaders don't address it. Paul rebukes them, says, you're there to maintain the purity of the church. Ephesians 5 talks about how the church is the bride of Christ 
And that is to present it spotless and blameless. The elder pastor is to protect the purity of the church. They're to uphold that moral part and also the doctrine part so that we can do what God has called us to do. So that's part of the order. And, and then the other parts of order is why we worship. We try to keep uh, the praise, making sure that it honors God. That's why we do communions. We have baptism. These are things that are supposed to happen in the church as a family. And the elder pastors to make sure it happens. And then you have, you know, our statement of faith. Anyone who teaches from this pulpit is held accountable by the statement of faith. This is what the church believes. Now, some people, they get really weird. They want this really big tent and this really broad statement. So a lot of people can believe different things. And it sounds loving and it sounds nice, but it's, it's mean. It really is. I want you to think about this. How would you feel if you came to the pastors and you asked us the same question and you got three different answers, then you ask the elders, and you got six more different answers, you got nine different answers. Does that sound like a really loving thing to do to you guys? No, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. If you ask me, Andy, Dave, you're going to hear the same thing, because we uphold the same statement of faith, because that's what unites the church. This is what we believe, and then it's upheld by the ones who oversee it. It's not kind and it's not loving to have everyone going in different directions. So what happens is this group gets a camp and then they get a camp and then they're a follower of Paul and then they're a follower of Apollos and then they're a follower of what you see in 1 Corinthians and then they fight and they backbite and who's smarter and who's better and who's more Christian and who loves Jesus more. That doesn't sound good, does it? Okay, That's part of the order of the church, that it keeps the unity of the church. So we don't have these camps and these fights and these battles. And that's one of the things I love about this church is the doctrine that's been taught here has been the same thing for over 30 years. Pastor Roger, the, the long-term pastor for over 20 years, he hired me, Dave, and Andy. How's that for continuity, right? That's one of the greatest things you can do is keep the word means what the word says. Hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught. It keeps order in your church. Just sometimes it's, it's hard and people don't like it, but it's not like that verse is under compulsion or gain. It's to the glory of God and it's to the good of the church. Okay, so there we go. Verse five is to put order. So he says, well, how does that order get maintained? It says by qualified men. So here are the qualifications he gives a list. He's like, these men need to be qualified. They need to have certain standards in order to uh, be able to hold the doctrine, to be an example to the flock, to keep the purity of the church. It's not just the first convert becomes a Christian and now they're the pastor. The Bible would absolutely say, no, you're not to do that. So here's the list. He starts the list with uh, verse six. Is anyone above reproach? This kind of gets confusing sometimes. I'll try to make it simple. It's whenever you think of an elder pastor, you shouldn't be able to easily think of them sinning when a, when a sin's brought up. Here's an oversimplification. If a bank get, gets robbed in Bakersfield, if your first thought is it was probably one of our elders or pastors, we're in trouble, right? Like if your first thought is that was probably Eric, right? Like we got a problem. Same thing when, when there's an act like, oh yeah, that was probably one of our pastors. That's not good. That's not above reproach. Then that doesn't mean we don't sin and, and that, you know, but don't be, if, if you're, you should be shocked to a degree because there is an above reproach manner in which the pastor elder handles things. And so we, 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 in one sense, we shouldn't be shocked because we all sin. But in another, we should be really shocked because what we see is godliness and character and integrity and following the Lord and being like Christ. And so above reproach, 
you can come ask them any question. There's no underground gambling ring they're a part of, fight world, addiction, no secret relationship. You could come and say, oh, like one time I had a, someone confront me that I was having lunch with a really cute blonde. It was my sister, but I'm glad they asked me, right? She stopped through and wanted to eat and they'd never seen her before. She lives in LA. They're like, that was not your wife. I'm like, I know, it was my sister. But we got to be able to have that conversation above reproach, right? So there's part one. So keep working your way through this. He says, and the husband of one wife. Um, I don't think that's getting at polygamy because that, that's just innately always sure. The thing we're saying is if a man can't be faithful to his wife, how is he going to be faithful to his church? That's what it's getting at. That's why when a pastor um, cheats on his wife, that's why he's disqualified. Can't be faithful to the one at home. You're not going to be faithful to the ones here. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but it means you shouldn't be giving oversight because you weren't faithful to your spouse. You won't be faithful to the church. So it's one of the characteristics it gives. Uh, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This is the one I got really wrong when I was nine. It doesn't mean that an elder pastor's kid won't break someone's heart, that they won't, you know, rebel in, in, in like most kids do. It's a deep-seated debauchery, a deep-seated rebellion. Want nothing to do with the Lord, want nothing to do with listening to their parents. That's why you come down here next week, we'll get into, he says, man, in Crete, they are liars, gluttons, and full of evil, wild and crazy. It's like these are the kids in this culture, and you don't want to make that man a pastor who has those kind of kids. He's like, that, that, man, that man needs to get his home in order first and then come. It doesn't mean that their kids won't be sinners or, or sin or break a heart, so to speak. Okay, so keep working our way through this list. Not be quick-tempered. Right? So you don't want, like I, I was at a church once and we were in a meeting. And the pastor walked out, kicked a chair. And I had to call one of the elders and I'm like, is that normal? No, Eric, that's not normal. That's not supposed to happen. Right? Because the temper wasn't controlled, and it comes out, and they says they have to be able to go to the Lord with those things, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, you know, that, that, and that gets into any type of addiction. They're not addicted. Their medicine is Christ, right? Their help is the Holy Spirit. Their, their way of getting help comes from the Father. It's not the medicine of the world through pills or tobacco or alcohol or whatever vice tries to be your medicine. Not violent, not to be, you know, fighting and knocking people out. Spiritual battle, yes, we're armed, but not with the fist, right? Greedy of gain. There's no prayer jet at LBC, right? There's no jet for us to go take up in the air so we can be closer to God and pray like some of the, you guys aren't laughing. You know people actually say that, right? They need a jet so they can be closer to God who's in the sky. And the old jet just doesn't get as high and it's better. It's more efficient, the new jet, right? Like, there's nothing going on here like that. It, even to tell you more, like, at our church, the pastors, we don't know what you give. We don't know if you give. We have no idea, no clue. Unless you hand us a check, then we know, which that's your fault, right? Like, we don't, there's an offering box right there. You can put it there. Um, it's better that you don't give it to us. But the, my point is, we're not in it for the gain. We don't know. We don't want to know. We just want to shepherd the church, right? Be hospitable. This one, it makes a lot of sense uh, more in this era of time when you'd be reading Titus because people would pass through a city and they won't have a hotel. So they'd have to stay somewhere. And it's saying if you're a pastor, elder should be the type of guy who can bring them into their home, share the gospel with them, love them, 
show them what a Christian family looks like, and either lead them to Jesus or plant the seeds of Jesus, and then they're on their way. And so we don't typically have that going on as much, but it's the same idea. You could bring in somebody, love them, show them Christ, plant the seed, or lead them to Christ, whatever. that You could host someone because your house is in order. It's not chaos. Where the person's like, I got to get out of here. This is nuts. Right? So the, the hospitality piece is your, your house is in enough order that you could help someone come in. Lover of good, right? Love the moral goodness of God. What God calls good, we love. Self-controlled, it's not going to fly off the handle. Upright, that's the bringing justice into the church. If there's sin, we address it. And they have to be willing to do that. They care about the justice of God. What God cares about, the elder pastor has to care about. Holy, set apart, discipline shows restraint. Now, what's cool about that list is, yes, those are qualifications, but it also said in 1 Peter to be an example. So those are things that we should all attain to, to not be quick-tempered, to be hospitable, to not be greedy, to love what is good, to want to be like Jesus, all of those things. So saying these men have to have these qualifications to oversee and to steward God's church. And then the last one he gives here is verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. I don't know why that's so hard in this day and age, but people really freak out if you rebuke false teaching. Have you noticed that? They just get so angry. Like all the church is supposed to do is tell you God loves you, God's with you, you're amazing. Did you see one verse that said any of those things? And it's not that God doesn't love you. And it's not that God isn't with you. It's that the Bible says a lot about sin. That we're supposed to not sin. We're supposed to repent, turn from sin, walk towards Christ. And we're supposed to be doing that consistently. And so the Bible, he's saying, hey, I've given elder pastors to oversee to make sure that the Bible is taught, not self-help, not psychology, that the trustworthy word is taught, that it's held firm, and that it's passed down. And then that primarily comes through the preaching of God's word to the people. That's why Paul says he's a preacher of God's word, passing down the knowledge. And he tells Timothy and Titus to teach the word as they were taught. And then he tells them to teach the word down. And it keeps going. And that when there's false things, you confront it. Because the purity of the church matters, doctrinally and morally. This is the charge of an elder, Hebrews 13, 17. It says, obey and submit to, your, submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Here's the thing I think we need to understand. We don't find great joy walking into a small group and saying, you can't teach that. We don't walk out of that meeting, go chest bump, like, that's right, we showed them. Try to teach that Bible study. That's right, we're in charge. Like, that's not how it goes down. You understand what I'm saying? It's not fun to do that. It's not fun to go in and tell someone, you know what, that, that's, that's really not a good study. It's not fun to call a man and say, hey, I saw you with a woman that wasn't your wife. These are not fun things to do. But right here it says that we have to give an account for the way we watched over the souls. And so if it comes between making you guys mad or getting this first right, we want to get this first right. We have to give an account to the Lord. 
That's why we try to be very consistent. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. Because we have to give an account before the Lord for how we taught and instructed the people. And so sometimes we're going to say, hey, that worship song, it's not talking about the greatness and glory of God. It's a great love song for two people dating maybe, but it's not a worship song. That study is not biblical marriage. That study doesn't accurately represent the Holy Spirit. You know, whatever it is. It's not done out of this fun we get to rule. That's why the next part of the verse says, let them do this with joy and not groaning. That would be of no advantage to you. God says we've instituted qualified men who have been taught the word of God to protect the church from false teaching from out and within so that they love him faithfully and truly. I think one of the downfalls of Moses was the people grumbling. I mean, he had it on a much larger scale, over 2 million people. But Moses is like, I'm just trying to tell you to do what God said. And you guys keep getting mad at me. They keep getting mad at Moses. And he's like, don't shoot the messenger, right? And so that's what this charge is, is that the elder pastor would address the purity of the doctrine, the purity of the church, so that the church represents God in the way he wants. Another way to think of it is that the church is called the bride of Christ. Jesus says, my bride is to be treated a certain way. Her holiness. She's to be white, white as snow, like a bride on her wedding day. That white gown is to be protected, spotless, maintained. And I charge you, the elder pastor, to help uphold that as taught and to rebuke when it con- contradicts. That's why membership is really important, is that you now have formally told the elder pastor, hey, we want to be a part of this family. We want to serve here. We want to give here. We want to be a part of being a light to the nations, part of growing people in Christ, part of fulfilling what God's called us to. It's a part of that accountability and saying, hey, I'm in this with you. And you're connected in that. So next part, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 18. So here's one of the common places where people think, hey, if there's two or three people gathered there, it's a church. It's not what the passage is getting at. Okay? We've already established a church is governed by a quali- qualified group of men. We established that? Okay, so now we're going to take the Matthew 18 part, because this is a part of what we're to do in a church. So Matthew 18, verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. See the family language? You have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Quick question. Does that, does, that, does that communicate now you have a church? Because there's two or three people that have gathered? What's the context? They're addressing a sin between two people and the one person doesn't want to admit that they've sinned. So then they grab two or three and they come together and they talk about it. The person still doesn't want to repent and change. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So here's the interesting argument. If they are the church, they tell it to themselves? You see what I'm saying? It it falls apart. It's absurd. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. Here's how this has played out before. There was a man in a Bible study and what started with him and his wife, and he said, I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. And she's like, that's blasphemy. You can't say that. 
And he's like, yes, I can. He's like, no, then you can't do that. So she said, well, let's go bring this up to our small group. He didn't listen to her one-on-one, brought it to a group. Group talks to him. He's like, Jesus is not the son of God. He didn't pay for your sins. So they brought it to the pastor, right? So I go, okay, I need to figure out, is this man having like a crisis of faith? Is he, re- is he renouncing his faith? Like, what's going on? So I was like, here, he said he'd been reading these postmodern authors. I'm like, give me your book that kind of shaped your mind. So I read that. I gave him a book to help. So then we start talking. He's like, nope, Jesus isn't the son of God. I don't even know if Jesus really existed. I don't believe Jesus paid for our sin. I don't think we needed sin. So you know what I had to tell him? Then you're not a Christian. And that sounds really harsh, doesn't it? But Jesus says he's the only way to God. And he says you have to believe and confess. And he didn't. So I said, well, then I need to treat you like you're not a Christian. You know what he said to me? Thank you. He said, now I know you actually believe what's in that book. Because I've read the Bible, and there's no way you can call me a Christian when I believe what I believe. We, we can't be afraid of calling something what it is, or we lose all respect that we don't actually believe what the Bible says. So then what did we do? We told the small group, hey, he is not a Christian. You need to treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. How did Jesus treat tax collectors and Gentiles? Repent and follow me. He needs to hear the gospel. So he was invited to this church. He came to this church, but we treated him as a non-Christian, meaning he's not going to be in leadership. You shouldn't go to him for marital advice or parenting advice because it's not going to be according to God's word because he's not a Christian. So we rightly identified we need to share the gospel with this man. He needs Jesus. So that's the purpose of Matthew 18. And the elders are to uphold that so that the believers, the church members, stick to the trustworthy word as taught, rebuking when it contradicts, so that we can love God faithfully and we can execute his mission to be a light to the nations, that we can reflect him in a dark world so that we can grow in godliness. And he says, this is my structure. This is how it works. This is for your good. Isn't that a good God? Amen. Some questions for us to think through. What are the components that make up a church? Okay. So hopefully you, you've understood it's qualified men. Okay. If you don't have that, that have the trustworthy word as taught, they can't teach, they can't rebuke, you do not have a church. So if someone tells you they go to a church and they're on this back porch, easy question. Where are their elders? Who are their elders? We see that from the text? Something to be able to think through. What is the function and purpose of an elder? To protect the doctrine of the church? To protect the morality and the purity of the church? The holiness of the church? What are good reasons to go to an elder for help? So, So this is very, that they're there to help shepherd. So it could be about marriage. It could be that you're sick. It could be about parenting. It could be about being a Christian in the workplace. And remember the beauty of it. You don't have to talk to the guy up here. There's a plurality of elders. Maybe you have a relationship with one or they've worked in your industry or they have your stage of life that they're there to help guide you, pray with you, point you back to Jesus, tell you what the Bible says about that because they hold the trustworthy word as taught. They hold it firm you're able to go to them for help. Fourth one is, why do Christians struggle when bad doctrine is rebuked? I think for the church to continue, we have to be able to be a church that can address false doctrine and not get all mad and hurt about it. Is that, is that fair? 
Because we've got to be able to sit down and say, well, what does the Bible say about that? So that we can hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught and get into the deeper. Why does the Bible tell us not to do that? Why does the Bible say this is a better way? And take a correction. If, if, if someone says, hey, you shouldn't be in that relationship, that's inappropriate. Oh, that was a rebuke. Thank you for loving me. And let me think about that. Oh, wow, you really don't believe in Jesus. We shouldn't call you a Christian. That's a loving thing to do. It's how God says, I've set this structure up to help you so that you can love me the way I've commanded you and you can live the way I've created you. That's what we want in the end, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the church, that we're not alone, uh, that we have each other to help each other grow. And it's our prayer that you would help us come together to maintain unity of faith, purity of the church, purity of the doctrine of the church, that we would be united, loving you, loving our neighbor uh, for our good and your glory. I just pray you would equip us in that endeavor, that we would be willing to give up anything for you, to follow you the way you've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you haven't been tracking with us, at the beginning of the year we made a shift that we're going to do communion on the first and third Sunday. Um, one, we want to practice remembering the Lord consistently. Two, we also notice that, you know, in Bakersfield, there's a lot of travel. And so if you miss one Sunday, you can end up not taking communion for two or three months. You're like, man, we need to offer it more so people can come before the Lord, remember what his son did on the cross and celebrate that. And so what I'm going to do is just walk through Matthew 26, explain it, and then we're going to have a time uh, to walk through what the scripture calls us to. And then at the end, to, to sing and respond in gratefulness to Jesus. Okay, so Matthew 26 says, Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 27. And he took the cup, and when he heard, and when he had given thanks, he had given it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out, for many for the forgiveness of sins. So he gives them this symbolic act that this bread and this juice represent the covenant where now you can go to the Father through Jesus because your sins have been paid for. That there is a forgiveness of sins when you've accepted Christ as that payment and you believe that he did that for you and you have access to God through Jesus. So this is a remembering of that covenant so we want to acknowledge that your sins are forgiven. But in communion, there's this act of acknowledging the sin. And so you have a time in communion of mourning and weeping, where you're confessing your sin before the Lord, that this, this is the way you've wronged him. This is the evil that is in your heart, the selfishness that is in your heart. And it wrecks you because you love him and you don't want to sin against him. And then as you remember the blood being poured out, the payment for our sin, that he rose from the dead, he conquered it, there is a gratefulness, there is a thankfulness, there is a celebration to the work of Christ. So in communion, you want to work through this arc or trajectory of mourning and weeping over the sin against God and then celebrating and thanking that you're forgiven and you're his child. And then at the end of that, we, we get to come to the Lord and sing and give him thanks for Christ. Give him thanks that we're his children. Give him thanks that we'll be with him in heaven. 
And so in your communion cups, you got the wafer on the bottom or the top. You know, just be careful. You don't rip it open too fast. It'll go everywhere. Uh, if you're not a Christian, we ask that you wouldn't partake. But maybe pray and seek the Lord or read your Bible or look at the words and, and just kind of ask yourself the questions. Where would I go when I die? Do I believe there is a God? Um, do I know I'm a sinner? Do I think I need forgiveness? And if you're uh, just a Christian, but maybe you got your kids with you, it's a great time to introduce them into what it looks like to repent, to confess sin, to turn, and then to celebrate and be grateful for Jesus, to walk them through that. So I'm going to pray, and then at your own pace, you can go ahead and partake. And then after a while, John will come back and we'll sing and celebrate and thank Jesus. Dear Jesus, we thank you uh, for your great work on the cross, that through your blood poured out, uh, you became the payment for our sin. He who knew no sin himself became sin for us. We thank you for that. So it's our prayer that you would convict our hearts of sin, that we would weep and mourn over the sin in our life, and then we would celebrate the payment and the work of you, Jesus, on our behalf, that we would be grateful people that love you and want to be like you and want to celebrate you. Be with us as we remember you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.